Good morning. If you would uh, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, that's where we're going to be this morning. As always, it's a pleasure to be with you, and I always look forward to opening the Word with you. But before we do that, let's pray for the Lord's help. Our gracious Father, we thank you for um, the gift of faith that you have given us. We thank you for your grace as we have received it through Christ. Lord, we pray this morning that you would be at work, um, even as the Apostle Paul penned this prayer for the Ephesians 2,000 years ago. Lord, I pray uh, that his priorities, that his desires, that, that everything that Paul was, Lord, would still be something before us to imitate as he imitated Christ. Lord, help us to learn from this text. Help us to uh, live faithful lives for Your honor and for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. This morning we're going to be talking about, I guess, quite a few things. Um, but one of the first things that I just want to, to mention by way of introduction is the idea of self-analysis. Something we all need to do, and it honestly is something that doesn't come easily. It doesn't come naturally to us. Because it is easy for us to be self-deceived, is it not? Sometimes we are harder on ourselves than we ought to be, and sometimes we are easier on ourselves than we ought to be. But Paul tells the Galatian church, he says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. But then he instructs the readers, keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. Paul commends self-analysis to the church as as a helpful and even vital piece to interpersonal dynamics. Elsewhere, Paul exhorts the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or or do you realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail to meet the test. Self-analysis, testing ourselves, it is vital, not only to church life, as, as we saw in Galatians, but Paul in Corinthians commends this as an instrumental piece of the Christian life. Both of these verses commend self-analysis as not only beneficial, but as necessary. But neither verse explains for us the method of self-analysis. Do they? they don't tell you. Paul never says, this is how you go about examining yourself. And so, what is the thermometer for Christian self-testing? Now, there are various things which I believe the Bible points us to. Jesus says that a tree is known by its fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. Jesus also says... From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you want to know what's going on in your heart, you examine what is coming out of your mouth. How do you speak to your children? How do you speak to your spouse? How do you speak to your friends, co-workers, people that you don't like? Not just are you, are you mean or are you unkind, but are you actively seeking their good and their benefit through the words that you use towards them? James says that it is the mark of true religion. If anyone, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, 
this person's religion is worthless. You see, the tongue cuts through self-deception in self-analysis. But often, we think about the tongue in relation to other people, right? As I just mentioned, how do I talk to my spouse, my children? We think of it in, in relation to other humans. But what about the use of our tongue in relation to God? What will you learn about your relationship with God based upon examining how you speak to Him and about Him? First, we should look at frequency, right? A non-existent prayer life says just as much about you as a rich and vibrant prayer life. And second, what is the content of your prayers? Are your prayers rife with thanksgiving, extolling God for His grace and mercy? Or are they filled with me, 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 want, 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 give, give, give? If someone spoke to you in the way that you spoke to God, how would you view that individual? What would you think of them? But not only that, based upon the content of your prayer life, what would you say are the highest desires, your ultimate aim in life? What are the things that sort of, that sort of uh, find themselves coming back again and again and again as you, as you come before the Lord? Now, if you are like me, and honestly, I'm not proud of this, but this test would yield dramatically different results week to week, right? But generally, I'm afraid it would reveal this sort of low-grade spiritual malaise. Quite frankly, if, I, if I'm being totally honest, the hots and the colds of my prayer life probably equal out to some sort of lukewarm, which the Bible never commends as a good thing. But I want to tease this out a bit further because I think it could be instructive. But I want to tease it out in light of an exemplary prayer life. Namely, the Apostle Paul. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul includes several prayers to God on behalf of, of the Ephesians. And he does this in several of his books throughout the New Testament. But I want to focus particularly on Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. So if you haven't turned there, go ahead and turn there. Paul begins in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul begins this prayer for this reason. This is a grounding conjunction that Paul is using to connect his prayer to everything that has come before. And so as you look at what comes before this prayer in chapter 3, you find in verse 1 another for this reason. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, 
a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. And then he sort of goes off on this 12-verse long tangent explaining to his readers the, the ministry of grace that the Lord has given him, the stewardship that the Apostle Paul has to bring the Gospel to the Gentiles. And then in verse 14, Paul resumes his prayer that he began in verse 1. And so I think that the proper connection for, for Paul's prayer here this, for this reason is actually what comes immediately before in chapter 2. That's where Paul begins. But this is not the first prayer that we see in the book of Ephesians. And if you turn back one page, maybe two pages to chapter 1, you see in verses 15 through 23, another one of the Apostle Paul's prayers. And I just want to read this quickly because I think at the heart of these prayers, you see the heart of the Apostle Paul as he's striving to encourage the Ephesians in their faith. Paul says there, For this reason, because of I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And so you see in that prayer, Paul's amazement first at the wisdom of God and His plan of salvation. Then Paul praises God for the power and the grace revealed in raising Christ from the dead and applying that same resurrection power to us, namely the church. And I want to camp for just a minute at the end of this first prayer because I think there, that, that this is significant as it's then picked up in chapter 2 and in our prayer in chapter 3. In verse 22, the Apostle Paul quotes from Psalm 8. Now, Psalm 8 is where David is extolling God for the work of creation. He's praising God for the heavens, for stars, for earth. And in verses 5 and 6... David stops sort of extolling God for these grand things and focuses on humanity. The fact that man is given a a dominion, he's given a place of significance over this majestic and magnificent creation that surrounds us just floors David. And Paul picks up from this verse and he applies it to Jesus Christ. Namely, Paul says, and he, that is God, put all things under his feet, that is Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This language that God put all things under his feet is the same language that David uses when speaking of Adam as he's exercising dominion over the earth. In this, Paul is demonstrating that in Jesus, humanity is being restored to its former glory. 
as Adam was to exercise dominion over the earth. He was to extend the rule and reign of God through keeping and preserving the garden. So Jesus Christ is now as the last Adam exercising dominion over the world through the church. I highlight this because this will be picked up in Paul's second prayer. And this is significant, I think, not only to understand Paul's prayer, but for us to understand the life of the Christian. To to understand growth in Christian maturity. So Paul moves from this into chapter 2, highlighting the, the state from which the Ephesians and all Christians are saved, namely, the dominion of death and the rule of Satan. All those who are outside of Christ are dead in their sins and their trespasses. They are under the reign of King Satan. God, however, redeems His people from this by powerfully making them alive with the same sort of resurrection power that He worked when He raised Jesus from the dead. So they are transferred from one kingdom, one kingship, one dominion, unto a different kingship, a different kingdom, and the dominion of Christ. That's the two states of people in the world. You are either under the dominion of death and sin, or you are under the dominion of the last Adam. And in us, He is bringing about the new creation. That's that's what Paul is highlighting here as he gets through chapter two, and then in verses eleven, um, chapter two, verses eleven through twenty-two, Paul goes on to enumerate what it is. Where is it that this new creation is being brought about? How do we see it? And we see it in the union of the Gentiles and the Jews. So it's no longer Jew-Gentile. Now it's Bride of Christ, Church, Body of Christ, those outside the Bride of Christ, Church, Body of Christ. So that's what's happening here in the book of Ephesians. There's no longer hostility between Jew and Gentile because the separation is no longer Jew and Gentile. The separation is now those who are aligned and and allegiant to Jesus Christ versus those who are aligned with the dominion of Satan, the, the prince of the power of the air. This mystery and this wonder of the Jews and the Gentiles being included in the magnificent display of God's wisdom and mercy is, is a change from the Old Testament picture where it was either Jew or Gentile. Now it is who is in Christ. In Christ, God has made the two one. No longer is Jewishness or Gentileness anything. Rather, it is those who are in Christ and those who are not. The focus of God's work is now the building and the construction of the church, the body of Christ. And Paul's heart and Paul's desire is to see the church established and built up into a holy institution giving praise and glory to Jesus Christ. And you see this right before Paul's petitionary prayer. So, right before sort of Paul's petitionary false start in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, you see in uh, chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So then. You, speaking to the Ephesians, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." For this reason, I, Paul, and that, that's how he starts this prayer, and he continues, for this reason, I, Paul, bow my knees before the Father. 
That's, that's the context that we see. Paul's priority is the building and the construction of the church. Now, we don't mean the physical building of the church. We mean the construction of the people of God as the dwelling and the temple of God. And you see this. Paul strenuously, la- strenuously labors for the sake of the church. He says to the Colossians, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. In His deep concern for the Galatians, for His his desire for this to be happening to the church in Galatia, and Paul sees the fact that they have abandoned the Gospel, and Paul is afraid for them. He says, My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul describes his affect before the Galatians as being in the anguish, in the pain of of childbirth. That's how deeply Paul felt for the construction of the church. That's how deeply Paul Paul felt for the growth of maturity of those whom he had evangelized and discipled. Paul spent his life for the glory of Christ by spending himself for the sake of the church. And that is what we feel coming out here in Paul's prayer. He is ardently concerned for the growth and the unity of the body of Christ. And this desire is what drives Paul to his knees as he prays to the Father. Paul's prayer must be seen in in this context of God's sovereign purpose in bringing all people together through Jesus. And Paul's ultimate desire is to see that happen. Thus, Paul's purpose is reflected in his hope for the church. He again says this later on in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, "...until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." That's the, the Lord gave the church those who were gifted so that the church could be built together and united and everyone grow to the, to the stature of knowing Christ Jesus. That, that's ultimately Paul's aim and Paul's goal and Paul's mission and what Paul is strenuously laboring for in Ephesus. This desire is, it drives Paul to his knees. And this, this is telling for us, I think. Why on earth would Paul be driven to his knees in this context? Wouldn't you be driven to do more, do more, do more? You see this desire to to grow the church, to build the church. Wouldn't you just want to be out evangelizing, 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 evangelizing? But what does Paul do? Paul gets on his knees and he prays. And and I think in this we see the fact that, that Paul's prayer reflects his knowledge of his insufficiency to this task. Paul fully recognizes, I don't convert anyone. Paul fully recognizes, I cannot read someone the Bible enough to bring them to Christian maturity. I I can't do it. The Lord is the one who has to do this work. And that, I think, is at the heart of of prayerlessness, is a heart of self-sufficiency. Most people who I know who would or should confess to prayerlessness, and myself included at times, right? are immediately on their knees when something goes terribly wrong, something like a financial crisis, something like a, a, a family crisis or a health crisis, 
They're driven to their knees when they feel as though they are completely out of control. But once crisis is averted, back to the status quo. Because then I'm back to being self-sufficient. Many of us live in this sort of delusion of self-sufficiency, and thus we are not impressed with the need to be on our knees. Or as the Apostle Paul said earlier in in, uh, his prayer in chapter 1, that he prays for the Ephesians without ceasing. That's how, how sort of Paul felt this, this, this lack of sufficiency. It drove him to pray for the Ephesian maturity without ceasing. At the heart of prayerlessness is, is a lack of knowledge of who we really are and who God really is. It's deficient theology. Prayerlessness reveals the fact that we still don't yet see reality as it is. That I don't yet recognize that the fact that my very existence, the fact that I am even here now or even a person, is owing and fully dependent upon God speaking me into existence. Prayer is framed by dependence. And we, brothers and sisters, are entirely and utterly dependent upon our sovereign Creator. Entirely and utterly. There is nothing in our lives that somehow escapes the domain of of God's creative activity. And thus Paul bows his knees from the Father, but he goes on here to explain a little bit more. I bow my knees before the Father, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So Paul goes on to to continue to explain who it is he's praying to. And Paul highlights the fact that every family, indeed every single human being, owes their naming, which is sort of their entire identity, to God. To God's creative activity. The greatest human amongst us and the worst human amongst us are just that. They are still human. And as a human... They are fully dependent upon God for their existence. No one is more or less important, but every single human is ordained and sustained by God Himself. And so as we contemplate the people around us, and I think this is sort of what Paul is doing, as we contemplate the people around us right now, the people at church, all of us, the people at school, the people at work, we must consider their very existence in the same way that we consider our own existence. And that is in light of a verse like Hebrews 3, which states that Jesus upholds the entire universe by His powerful Word. Or as it says in Colossians, that all things hold together in Christ, or in in Him all things consist. That is, they owe their being and their unity to the action of Jesus. Every atom of every single element in every single place owes its very being to the sovereign speech of the Creator. And we too are entirely dependent upon this. If God stops speaking, we stop being. That is the great equalizer. Whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, whether rich or poor, whatever the circumstances... If God stops speaking, you stop being. Whence then discrimination? Whence then thoughts of any sort of racial superiority or personal pedigree or really any sort of superiority at all? No class, no race is closer to God nor further away from God than any other. Before God, a human is a human the world round. 
Every single human must find themselves saying with the Apostle Paul from Romans 11, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has, made, who has been made His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Paul emphasizes this once again to highlight the cosmic mystery of God's reconciling all kinds of people in Christ. And so this is the ground for Paul's prayer. Now he moves into the first petition in verses 16 and 17. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's Paul's first petition. The first thing that Paul's praying for in this particular prayer. And he begins this prayer by appealing to the riches of God's glory. He says that according to the riches of His glory. Now this demands meditation. And this demands more meditation than I can give you in the pulpit. This demands more meditation than I could give you in the pulpit if I were to preach for two or three or four hours. I cannot adequately communicate the fullness of this one clause. Another way to put this would be According to the sum total of God's value or God's, or the worth of God's fullness. So if, if you think about the value of God, how valuable is He? Now that's ridiculous, right? Because it's, it's pretending to think of God as a commodity or something that could be bartered. But just, just continue to think about it for a minute. If you were to sort of barter with God as the thing that you are offering someone, what could they offer you that would even come close? I mean, I mean you're, you're, we're talking about things like the scope of the universe. Even, even if someone could offer you the whole universe, it would not even come close to being as valuable as, valuable as God Himself is. And this is what the Apostle Paul is praying for is that God marshalling all of the assets of His person, all of His character, all of His attributes, that He would act behind you on your behalf, that according to the riches of His glory, He would strengthen you. That, that, like, I, that, that should leave us speechless. I mean, we're, we're talking about, about God whose glory is so much that human eyes cannot even behold it. That the riches of His glory would be marshaled on your behalf so that you might be strengthened in the inner being. That's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. How, how do we conceive of these things? How, how, I mean, that, this, again, this bears meditation. But if, if that is who is behind us, if that is who is behind us working according to His purpose in our lives, what do we have to be afraid of? What do we have to be anxious about? What do we have to be angry about? Just think about these things. Paul asks the Lord to strengthen the Ephesians according to the riches of His glory. And Paul then asks the Lord to strengthen the Ephesians with power through His Spirit. Now, power is kind of a funny word. And I'm sure you've all heard someone preach on this word is dunamis, which means dynamite. This is the dynamite power of God. That's ridiculous, alright? The, the word dynamite came thousands of years after the word dunamis. Yes, they're related, but we ought not to read the definition of dynamite back into dunamis. Rather, we need to look contextually at what Paul is saying in the book of Ephesians. 
Paul's not talking about dynamite power. He doesn't have C4 in mind. Paul has the resurrection in mind. If you turn back to chapter 1, to Paul's previous prayer, chapter 1, verse 19, uh, Paul says, uh, or Paul prays starting in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. That is the power. And that power is far surpassing any sort of dynamite explosive power that we can talk about. This is the explosive power of the new creation. The power that God used when He raised Christ from a state of humiliation and lowliness to a state of exaltation. That's the power that Paul wants to be worked on behalf of the Ephesians. And that's amazing. That's the new birth. That is regeneration. That is the power that is going to change your will from desiring sin and shame to desiring life and peace and fruit and Christ. That's what Paul is talking about. The power reference is not a force or energy. It is the act of a new creation. When Jesus died in the flesh under the law and then took up His life again, that newness of life is the power of God. Paul picks up the same theme. So I'm not just pointing you to one verse, but he picks up the same theme in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. This is one of our many people's favorite verses. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. That's the power of God exercised on a dead soul of man. The power of the resurrection exerted by the Holy Spirit. Listen to Paul's words from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul prays that the resurrection power, the act of the new creation would be operative in the individual believers within the Ephesian church. And notice that this is not through external exertion. Alright? This isn't God exercising His power on my body, but this is through the inner man. Look at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Strengthened through His power in your inner being. The inner being here is roughly synonymous with what we would think of as heart. Right? It's the seat of our emotions. It's the seat of the will, the seat of the desire. Everything I think about, everything I want, all of that flows out of the heart. And that is where this resurrection power is being placed. That is where Paul is praying that this power would be exercised. The will, the desire, the thoughts, the intentions of someone who has been brought, who has not been brought from death into life. The, 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 the will, the thoughts, the desires of someone who is dead are continually and destructively fixated on the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. They are, as, as um, 
are the Sovereign Grace Musics, um, All I Have is Christ. They're running their headlong race, bent for destruction, following the prince of the power of the air. But when the, when the Spirit exerts Himself on your heart, and He creates in you a new heart, and He places Himself within you, He places His Spirit within you, the will, the mind, the desires, all of these things are changed. And this is the glorious truth of the new birth. And this is the power of God, the resurrection of power of God exercised on the, the soul of a dead man. But we, as, as Christians, are still often conformed and pursuant of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. Those things continue to intrude into our, into our thinking, do they not? And hence, I think, Paul's prayer. Paul knows this frame of man. Paul knows the heart and the desire. And so Paul is praying that these things would be squelched in the Ephesians, just as I think Paul would be praying today for us that these things would be squelched in us as well. The the strengthening of the inner man is tied with Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. You see, this strengthening and Christ indwelling are two sides of the same coin. As I mentioned earlier, Paul describes Christ as the last Adam. And as the last Adam, Christ is exercising dominion over His domain, which is His his people, the church, His corporate body. And so as Jesus takes up residence in individual Christians, the extension of His reign and the restoration of the image of God it is happening to individual believers. That is sanctification. But it's primarily and first happening in the thought, the will, the desire, and the intention of man. In the New Covenant, the keeping and the preserving of the garden is the sanctification of individuals. It is the conforming of your mind, your will, and your desires to the Word of God. That is what it means to submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is that you are submitting every single, every single outpouring of your heart to His Word, that you are cutting those off which are, which are wrong, which are bad, which are sinful, and you are cultivating those which are good. That I think the, the gardening imagery is very helpful here. Paul's desire is that the church corporately would be a suitable habitation for the Lord of, of glory, that the church would be sanctified. And God stands behind this again with the fullness of His being. I don't, I don't know if you, like me, ever ask the question, is change possible? You know, you're in the middle of a struggle with sin that you feel like you've been struggling with for year after year after year after year. And you just ask yourself, is, is change possible? Isn't this sort of integral to who I am as a person? If I quit doing this sin, then maybe I would just cease to exist. You know, And of course change is possible. God is standing behind our sanctification effort. And as we pursue the sanctification that the Lord has laid out for us, we can have full confidence that the will of the Lord is on our side and that He is working on our behalf. And so as we, as we swing the axe at the root of the tree, we need to do so knowing that God stands behind us. We, last night we're opening presents. And it was so funny to watch Renee open presents because... She has these great toys in these boxes. Great toys in boxes. What does Renee want? She's trying to rip the paper off, but once she gets a handful of paper, what does she do with it? She immediately stuffs it in her mouth and starts trying to eat it. I've never seen a child so frantically trying to eat paper. 
And then it struck me, that's me. That's me, right? What are the sins and the desires of the world that I'm trying to rip off and stuff in my mouth when the Lord of glory is standing before me? What, what am I doing? I'm doing exactly what Renee looks like. And it's ridiculous because she's six months old. But when it's me, I all of a sudden find that I can justify just about anything to get that handful of paper in my mouth. That's what we do. And that's what the Lord is standing there. And that's what the Apostle Paul is praying for. He's saying, stop it! Stop it! And that's what the Lord is saying. And so may we stop stuffing paper in our mouth. May we stop pursuing boxes of cardboard and things that don't matter so that we can find the real toys, the real gems of God, the love of Christ, which is Paul's next petition. Right? So he's praying that they would, that they, that they would be strengthened in the inner man. And then Paul's second prayer is that you might have strength to comprehend the love of God. Now, as I was thinking about that, it didn't strike me at first because I've heard these verses so many times, so many times. You may have strength to comprehend the height, the breadth, the depth. You just hear it over and over and over again. And then it struck me. Paul has to pray for God's help for the Ephesians to understand the love of God. How often do we throw around the phrase, God loves you, God loves you, of course God loves me. We throw these things around. Paul doesn't take this for granted. For us to understand this requires a supernatural act that the Lord would give us eyes to see. That the Lord would give us palates to appreciate the taste. Because apart from God's work, His love is nothing more than a present in a box while I would rather eat wrapping paper. But when God works, when He grows us up in maturity, no longer we, we tear the wrapping paper off and we throw it aside so that we can get the true prize. So that we can receive, Paul says in, in Philippians, that he counts everything as a loss. Everything as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus. That is Christian maturity. That's Christian maturity. And that's Paul's prayer. He says he, that, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, that's not the Ephesians' love to God, that's God's love for the Ephesians. That we would be rooted and grounded. Is a, it's an agricultural term and a construction term. If you think about how important the root system is to a plant, and how the root system then guides the direction and the, the growth of that plant, that's what we need to be like in the love of God. People need to be able to see that we are drawing our nutrients, that we are drawing our strength from the love of God. And when you see the, the foundation of a house, you know, that when, if you're driving down the street and you see that someone is building a foundation, you can usually tell what they're building a foundation for, right? If it's a slab, it's probably for a garage. If it's a basement that's, you know, roughly 800 square feet, it's probably for a small ranch style house. If it's, 800 foot deep with moorings in the rock, they probably are building a skyscraper. What, what does our foundation, as you think about the house that's being constructed, as, as you think about your being constructed, what foundation are you rooted and grounded in? Are you rooted and grounded in the love of Christ? Is there a depth about you and a strength about you that points people to the fact that your sins are forgiven by the, the precious blood of the eternal Son of God? Is that what your foundation is, is constructing? What, what are your desires pointing you to? Because that's what Paul is praying here. And, and we see Paul's desires. We see 
Paul's motivations is this is, this is his fervent and ardent prayer for the Ephesians that this is the type of person that you would be because this is Christian maturity. That you would be someone who is rooted and grounded in love. And that God would give you strength to comprehend the height and breadth and depth and length. The, the, in, in short, what Paul is saying is the extent of God's love. That it, this isn't something that you can ever get behind. This isn't something that you can ever get beneath or above or past or beyond. This, the love of God is, is not something that we learn about and then sort of leave at the door. It's not the, the initial doctrine of the Christian faith, but this love of God, is, that is the pursuit of our entire life. That we are, are guided and directed on the trajectory of knowing and loving Jesus Christ because He has known and loved us. And this knowledge, this, this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, this isn't to say that it's unknowable. I mean, that's, Paul's not saying that this cannot be comprehended. But what Paul is saying is that you will never exhaust this. You could spend the rest of your life only thinking about this and you would never get to the end of it. But do we even spend an hour thinking about this? Because if you were the type of person, and I, I'm saying this to myself, if I were the type of person who was drenched, saturated with thinking and meditating and pondering the love of God, that Paul says, in love, God predestined us. So this love for us in Christ even preceded our existence. That this love that, that the Lord has given us, that He has placed upon us, that we as His enemies, as, as wretched sinners, might be brought into His own family. If, if we would begin to think about, we talked about hell this morning. The thing about hell is that's what sin deserves. What my sin deserves is hell. For me to be able to get into heaven... Someone had to pay that debt who did not deserve that thing. When Jesus was on the cross, He was not just merely facing some sort of physical punishment. It wasn't the same punishment as the the two men crucified next to Him. Christ was bearing the wrath for sin, which is eternal hell, on His soul. He can say, I've been there, I've tasted that. Because He had to taste that so that we could have entrance in. That colors our understanding of the love of Christ. And that's something that we can think about for a long, long, long time. And that's Paul's prayer. As Paul is is looking at these baby Ephesian Christians, these people that Paul has shared the Gospel with, and if, if you read... Acts chapter 20, and you see his meeting with the Ephesian elders, and you see the heart, and you see the the tears. How often when a pastor leaves, are there tears on the beach? You know, when the Apostle Paul was leaving the Ephesians for the the last time, they all wept because of the love that they shared. It gives you a a piece, a, a picture of the heart of the Apostle Paul as he's writing to these Ephesians. And the highest thing that Paul can pray for for them is that Christ's dominion would be extended in you and through you. That Christ's love would be something that saturates you, something that enlivens you, something that that brightens your countenance. That, That the contemplation of the love of Christ would be the thing for you that surpasses everything else. Those are the two highest things that the Apostle Paul can think to pray for the Ephesians. And so as we close, to think just just briefly again about self-analysis. 
Does your prayer reflect this prayer? Does the direction of your life reflect the direction of Christian maturity? Or does the direction of your life reflect a, a continual persistence in chewing on wrapping paper while the gift sits right beside you? Don't, don't do that. I don't want to do that. Encourage me not to do that as I this morning hope to encourage you not to do that. Will you please pray with me? Our gracious Lord, we thank You. We thank You for all of the gifts that You've given us. Lord, as Paul enumerates, all of the spiritual blessings in heavenly realms are ours in Christ. Lord, what that means most of all is that we get to receive You. That we get to receive the fullness of Your glory, Lord. Something that, that is so unspeakably beautiful and brilliant, Lord, that we, we don't even begin to comprehend a tenth of it. Help us to see Lord, help us to see the, the trappings of this world and the sins which so easily ensnare, Lord, are nothing, nothing but tissue paper and cardboard boxes in comparison to the beautiful gift of Your glory as it has been received in Christ. Lord, grow us up. Train us in maturity. Lord, we pray that we would receive the fullness of, of Your being so that we might be able to exemplify that and live faithfully, Lord, to demonstrate Your love as we are rooted and grounded in it. Please, Lord, be present with us this morning, this week, this month as we think about Christmas and the sacrifice that You paid so that we could be brought into Your family. Lord, thank You. In Jesus' name.